Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project. I'm Jay Harrington. With me is Rachel Bosch. She is CEO and founder of Fringe Professional Development, which provides workshops, consulting, uh, coaching, and professional development for professionals and professional services firms. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jay. Happy to be here. Happy to talk yeah. about all those professionals. Yeah, I know. Just lots of professionals. So many professionals. <laughs> lots of professionals. We're always, do- you and I both deal with lots of professionals, no doubt about that. Um, so yeah, let's talk about some things that are related to professional development uh, today. So um, I thought we'd start uh, with a, I think this is a favorite topic of yours, uh, which is upward feedback. And I, you know, I know that's one of those terms that I think many of us have heard, but maybe don't have a clear understanding of what, it, what exactly that means. Because I think most of us are used to downward feedback, um, both giving it and receiving it. So so what distinguishes upward feedback? If we can just maybe start by defining that term. Yeah, so you're on the right track. It is directional, right? Mm-hmm. So most people, like you say, are familiar with downward or downstream feedback, upward or upstream feedback is just the opposite. So mm-hmm. instead of somebody sitting in a leadership position, giving feedback to folks who work underneath them. Uh, This is the folks who work underneath giving feedback up to their leadership. So inherently, there are some core differences in the feedback. When you're giving downstream feedback, you tend to give both professional skill feedback and uh, acumen feedback specific to your industry and job position. Um, Since somebody who's in a more junior role is just not in a position to say, hey, you didn't do a great job on that technical aspect of your work. It is almost primarily professional skills and management focused, um, but it it gives a voice to folks at the bottom of the organization. And it also provides development and growth opportunities for folks at the top of organizations. Yeah. Yeah. And the way I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the episode and and this discussion, um, it's, I think, I think feedback is something that allows us to go beyond self-awareness. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a way to form self-awareness, but um, oftentimes we're thinking of that in terms of just like, all right, we're evaluating ourselves. Um, but in this case, we're more aware of sort of externally self-aware, um, maybe getting a better sense of, you know, how our actions, our words impact other people from a more objective standpoint. Is that is that a fair way to think about it? Yeah. I mean, I think that's true about all feedback acumen-based or otherwise. Um, But certainly when it is in the professional or I think you know this, I hate the phrase soft skills, but the softer sort of bucket, emotional intelligence, psychological safety, things like that, trust, um, it is perception-based. And, you know, most really strong assessment tools for upward feedback build that in, in the same way that we would recommend it for downstream feedback. So leaders who are getting upward feedback should be rating themselves so that they have a direct comparison between their self-perception and the perception of other people. And they can then use that comparative perception difference to say, oh, actually, I thought this was landing in a particular way, but it's not. Um, oh, I thought that I was seen as a really strong delegator, 
but I'm not, I'm seen as a micromanager. And so that perception is really what you're playing with. It's also the thing though, that inherently I think makes it challenging for certain leaders um, because they want to see feedback as fact-based, especially lawyers. And uh, the reality is very little feedback, even the feedback they are giving is completely fact-based. It's perception-based. Um, so that can be a challenge, but also a real benefit. Right. Yeah, for sure. I could see that benefit. Um, and, and that probably is, yeah, something that is a challenge for many people because it's kind of like in all facets of life, we're kind of looking to confirm our biases. So if we believe something about ourselves, we're, we're probably going to either cherry pick, uh, you know, the good, the good feedback, or at least have maybe a tendency to do so and, and dismiss the, uh, the negative feedback or constructive feedback. I mean, is that, is that one of the challenges you see with people, not just, you know, receiving the feedback, but incorporating it, um, like really looking at it from an objective standpoint? I don't know if it's dismissing the mm -hmm. constructive feedback. Honestly, the biggest thing that I see is people really spiraling around the constructive feedback. Uh, yeah. Um, and I think that some of that is like just inherent to the audience, right? Is that they're looking for problems. Uh, and so they kind of latch onto those things when we're coaching people after they've received one of these reports. One of the first things we have them do is pull out the positive things, the things that were supportive things mm -hmm. that are uh, showing their strengths. Because if we don't do that at the very first uh, part of the conversation, they will just spiral into anything that they deem to be constructive. Um, and so that I think is actually a bigger challenge. You know, the folks who don't want to engage in this process at all, they will dismiss constructive, be honest, they'll dismiss all the feedback. Right. Um, and there are always a couple of those in the pool and we don't let them sort of detract from the growth opportunities of everyone else. Um, but more often than not, it's, it's attachment to the constructive, which hmm. I don't know, maybe that's different than what you expected. Yeah, it is a little bit, but no, that, that, that makes sense as well. I mean, I could see that, right. It's, it's that whole, you know, concept of it's, it's like on being on social media, right. Where you, you post something, you get 20 unabashedly positive comments, yeah. and then one person, you know, trashes you or trolls you. And that's all you can think about. So, um, I can now, in the way you describe it, that, that resonates with me now. Um, because that's, I, that is how we receive all kinds of inputs from, from the outside world. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that hyper fixation on anything mm -hmm. that to your point, does not confirm our existing bias itself. Mm -hmm. um, it's just distracting. It's aggravating. Um, we see lots of people try to source the information, which we're always encouraging you not to do. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we say a lot is you don't have to believe the feedback for it to be helpful. You don't have to agree with it for it to mm -hmm. be helpful. It's true to the person who said it. Mm -hmm. So just think about it that way. Like, feel free to disassociate from that constructive feedback and look at it almost as an outsider and say, okay, well, if this is just somebody else's perspective of me, it's still important. It's still valid. What could I do differently to shift that perspective if it's important to me? Right. Yeah. You can't, it's like having a internal locus of control, right? You can control the things you know, that, that you have control over uh, and you can change those things, but not, not necessarily someone else's perception. And you have to deal with people as they are to some extent. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm interested in this because admittedly, this is a small sample set and it was a long time ago, but um, yeah, I worked in a couple large law firms and I don't remember the term 
upward feedback ever being uttered or or just conceptually that was a thing was never a thing i never i never provided feedback to the partners i worked for mm-hmm. um so I, i'm i'm curious how how pervasive is this within the legal community like how how many firms are actually soliciting upward feedback um in, in their firms so it's really hard to count this mm-hmm. uh, when we're going off of NALP data, we can say that just over half of the AMLAW 50 are engaging in this in hmm. some way. Um, now, it's just a checkbox. Do you do it or do you not do it? Um, I can tell you, we've got a lot of folks who are working with us on pilot programs, taking just uh, you know the partnership of a practice group. And let's just like play with it in that group. And usually those practice group leaders are folks who are really keen on professional development anyway, want to see what's going on, or maybe they have a particular uh, issue in their practice group that they want to root out. Um, So it could be any number of reasons why a smaller group might be invested and involved in that. I would anticipate that that, I think it's like 54% of that AMLAW 50 I would anticipate it's higher if you start including those pilot programs. Mm -hmm. Um, The other place that we see it being used, which is harder to count on those NALP forms, is through executive coaching. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, when somebody comes to us for executive coaching, if that person sits in a management role and if even a minutia of what they need to be coached around has to do with managing, talking to other people, engaging with other people, which in a services firm it does, um, we always do upward feedback, or we might expand the circle to be 360 feedback for them, which just means they're peer level folks. And maybe even if they have someone more senior to them, they also give feedback. Um, And so I think, you know, looking at it holistically that way, this is happening a lot in in big firms. it's just, is it being counted in that 54%? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not convinced that those smaller executive coaching programs or uh, pilots are being counted full on, I think is that 54%. I think people are only really checking that out box if they're fully engaged in it, because if not, then, you know, to your point, Jay, an associate would show up and they'd be like looking around for it. <laughs> Yeah, well, this isn't actually happening here. So I think we're only getting people checking that box who are doing it holistically. But something else that I'll say that I think is really interesting is that the group that's doing it, at least that we have insight into, is not a monolith at all. Um, so we have folks who do it um, exec com only. We have folks who do all partners. We work with a firm that goes all the way down to 30-year associates. So literally as an associate, as soon as you start managing somebody, you get upward feedback. So each firm is doing it in different ways. Um, And I don't think we've got a real trend line around what a common rollout plan is. If anything, it's probably partners. Um, But even that, like I say, sometimes it's a smaller subgroup of the partnership and it's not exclusive to lawyers. We have done this in the past uh, multiple times on the business services side of team with business service leadership as well. Got it. Um, okay. And I, I'm also curious. So obviously providing any form of feedback takes two to tango, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what I would imagine, like if I'm, you know, if I was asked to provide upward feedback as an associate and I don't know, I don't know if this is done anonymously in, in most cases, but um, regardless, if there's some paper trail, you would think that some associates would be hesitant to provide honest feedback because of fear of retaliation or, or whatever. Um, is that something you run into and are there ways to work around that? I, I think the or whatever can just get 
taken out of this fear of retaliation (laughs) or whatever. Um, So I'll I'll amend your earlier statement. It takes three to five to tango to to the point of keeping people anonymous. Um, We prefer at least five pieces of feedback to keep afford to be able to produce a report for people. Um, we have some firms that we work with with really small practice groups where it's really only feasible to get three people to give feedback. So we will toggle down as low as three pieces of feedback, but it takes more than two. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes that three to five number. Um, fear around this process is probably the biggest issue on both sides, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen some... Um, to put it kindly, um, some real meltdowns um, from leaders who are going to get this feedback. Hmm. And I've seen a lot of fear uh, in the eyes and hearts of associates <laughs> who are going to give the feedback, yeah. which is why it's really important. You you sort of said you assumed that it was anonymous. Sort of best practice in feedback world is that downstream feedback leadership to subordinate is de-anonymized mm-hmm. and that upstream is anonymized. And I had a partner at a firm once fight me on this. I know I have to say who I am when I'm giving feedback. Why shouldn't the associate have to say who they are? And I said, with all due, you hold all the power to yeah. retaliate in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we moved on fairly quickly yeah, yeah, from that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but in general, upward feedback should always be anonymized. Upward feedback is also really, it's helpful to keep upward feedback out of your other traditional systems to help with that trust. Um, associates tend not to trust it. If they're going in and like filling out an internal survey tool, why should they trust that, that who they are is not going to get back to the person? I mean, we're talking about folks who have fear that their IP address is going to be tracked. So they're like really nervous about this. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, our our tool is completely separate. We actually don't integrate with any firm systems because we want to keep it completely separate. And we're really clear on that. The other thing that we kind of do is there's a cumulative um, sort of buildup as people start to adopt this. So the first year you're going to get, you know, maybe... of your feedback forms completed. And that's, again, being slightly generous. Every year after that you continue to do it and that you roll it out in a way where you are maintaining confidentiality, anonymity, people's identities, you'll see those percentages increase. So there's there's a bit of stick-to-itness that you need as you're going Mm -hmm. through it. And you need to meet people where they are. So like, for example, in our process, we don't ask people in year one to disclose a ton of information. We always say we have a choose your own adventure approach where like in the same form year over year, you can start to increase your comfort level. So you could fill it out year one and just click a bunch of numbers. And, you know, sometimes firms will be like, well, if you just are, if they're just giving me the numbers, how helpful is it? I'm like, it's really helpful. It's giving you a baseline. And remember you're comparing against your self-perceived number So it's really helpful. And if you're in a big group, you're comparing against your self-perceived number and the average of your peers. You have three data points, even if you just have numbers, that's helpful. We also have narrative boxes where people can put comments. And in there, I think that's like a middle ground. You can be really cagey in your narrative comments. You can say Mm -hmm. things that do not give any indication who you are. 
And then the most comfortable level would be the people who have no fear of retaliation, which we love to see. It shows mm -hmm. a trusting, psychologically safe environment. And they'll be like, hey, Jay, on the call that we had on December 15th, when we were talking about XYZ, I thought you kind of talked over me a little bit. Yeah. Maybe don't do that. <laughs> and, right. and we see that. We see plenty of associates who feel so comfortable in their environment that they're happy to disclose who they are through their comments. Mm -hmm. And then we also see people who just want to click on the numbers. So you have to give people options to meet them where they are in their comfort level. And then know that that comfort level will grow year over year if you don't undermine the process, if you keep the integrity of the process at the front of everything that you're doing. Yeah. Do you see this process as having like expanded benefits beyond like just, for example, like shifting the culture more broadly in a firm to be more transparent, more communication, more communicative. Like, is that, is that what you're, is that what the hope is of, of this beyond just like the nuts and bolts of the process partners reviewing it, maybe some integrating some of it individually, but is there, is there a cultural impact that's broader? Yeah, there's, there's cultural impact, there's learning impact. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the, one of the things that's really interesting in law firms in particular is um, everyone wants feedback. Everyone wants to talk about feedback. No one teaches anyone how to give feedback. Um, right. We do. Um, but, you know, we're not internal to these firms. So yeah. we're sort of dropping in once a year, twice a year to talk to folks about giving feedback. Having associates practice giving upward feedback mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. teaches them to give effective feedback. Yeah, there's there's a learning element in it such that when they turn around to have to give downstream feedback, they have some familiarity with having to select a score, having to give a narrative comment, you know, having to actually think through how did somebody perform with me this year? So, so there's a learning component to it. And then to your point, there's a there's a huge cultural component to it. And I'm not naive. That cultural component cuts both ways, uh, can cut both ways. So like. Mm -hmm. If you undermine the integrity of this process as you're going through it, you will undermine your culture. Like, I don't know what to say. If you, one of the questions that we ask when we're sort of ascertaining readiness, because I don't want to work with a firm that is not ready for this process. And we've had firms come to us and their leadership will say like, we really want to do this, but we're not there yet. And I'm like, great. Let's talk about some things you can do to get there. You don't want to do it when you're not ready, because when we ask that question I was saying in the in the readiness check, we'll say, like, what are you willing to do to hold particularly influential partners accountable to that behavior? Mm -hmm. And the jaws that drop uh, are, are plenty. <laughs> like people are <laughs> right. not prepared for that question. Yeah. Um, but if you ask a bunch of associates to give feedback, and they do. And they say, hey, we have a real problem over here. And the firm is like, thanks for that feedback. We're going to keep on, <laughs> right. keeping on. No one's going to trust it in the future. And it undermines culture because you literally told people through your actions, I don't care what you tell us. We're not going to change the situation. Yeah. So that's what I mean. It can really impact it negatively. Now, to end on a, on a high note, right? <laughs> like, If you're willing to actually push people in leadership and say, hey, you know, we got a lot of really constructive feedback for you. 
we want to support you. You're a very important member of this team. We'd like to get you some executive coaching. Maybe we're going to recommend some training programs for you. Um, we're going to partner you with a more seasoned uh, leadership person. Maybe it's a partner. Maybe it's a practice group leader who's really good at mentoring and managing. And then the associates see that. That's huge. Because now you're saying, hey, your voice matters and you have an impact here. The other thing is, you know, I don't want to say that it should all be on leadership. Leadership has to be willing to play its part, especially with the most extreme cases. But on an individual level, the leaders who receive this type of feedback, even if they're just your run-of-the-mill partner, if they're willing to be candid and open and say like, oh, this came up and I wasn't really expecting it, I'm going to work on that when they're talking to their associates, it just builds such a culture of trust. And it does, to your earlier point, say feedback is a thing that matters here. So then when that associate wants to, you know, give some feedback in the middle of the year, maybe they don't wait for upward feedback, the formal process, in the same way that we're all running around in PD talking about real-time feedback and can the partners give real-time feedback? You know, the more you put in moments of feedback that actually are successful, the more you provide a safety net for people to give feedback outside of those formal processes. You say, this is a place where feedback is welcome, it's encouraged and it's acted upon. Uh, so that's the positive cultural side. Yeah, love that. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think culture is such a know, fuzzy term, right? That we, we use it, but we don't really know what it means uh, and and certainly don't know how to build it, but this certainly sounds like a way to move in a positive direction. Um, I would, I'm just going to jump in there because yeah. I, I, I don't know that it's, I think culture on its own, it mm -hmm. can be fuzzy. Mm -hmm. It's not that we don't know how to build it. I mm -hmm. think most firms don't know how to define it. Yeah, right. Because the building of it is just mm -hmm. acting on behaviors that support mm -hmm. definition. Mm -hmm. But you walk around, I mean, my favorite thing ever, and I, I actually love the firm that this happened at, so, and they really do invest a lot and, and have worked on this since, since we first started working with them, but they like plaster their values everywhere. So they're like ahead of the game on that, right? They at least say like, this is what we care about. These are the rules. This mm -hmm. is how we engage with each other. Um, and they, like a lot of other organizations, not just law firms, have a core value of respect. Mm -hmm. We surveyed bunch of their folks about the core values. And for each one said, what does this actually mean in the way that you engage with your colleagues on a day-to-day -day basis? And the overwhelming response to the respect value was we respect each other. <laughs> yeah. Which means the value <laughs> right. hasn't been defined. Right. Exactly. You just chose a word, but mm -hmm. nobody knows what it means. Yep. And that's where I don't think that it's, I don't think that building culture is this like challenging yeah. thing that people especially smart folks cannot figure out it's mm -hmm. defining it and knowing what the behaviors are that support those definitions yeah yeah for sure right i mean i in more in my context it's you know we talk about building a business development culture and, and it's the same thing right it's not about it's not about spouting words it's about what are the behaviors that yeah. actually lead to that and the incentives yeah. that the firm creates to to map towards that right i mean how yeah. do you how do you build a culture well you, your incentives have to point in that direction um especially when it comes to like business development yeah. um all right so let's let's shift gears here and talk uh, about another topic that uh, is near and dear to both of us which is coaching and training and um maybe you know some trends that 
we see uh, some best practices, some developments in that in that space. Um, so, I'll, Rachel, if you could maybe maybe it would be helpful if we talked about uh, first, like I think we'll talk about things that are you know we should be thinking about and that are positive developments and best practices for moving forward. But what do you see as like if we were to say like okay, what's what's wrong with coaching and training to kind of lay some foundation, like historically, traditionally, not like way back, but maybe what are some things that are just repeated um, things that firms do or individuals do that just aren't all that effective when it comes to those areas? Yeah. Um, way to start on a, on a bright note. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yeah. uh, well, you said like, don't go too far back, but we don't have to go too far back in the coaching realm because right. Coaching- really new in law firms, mm-hmm. really, really new. And I think the biggest problem looking backwards on how coaching got introduced in firms was that it was punitive and it was mostly used as outplacement support. Mm-hmm. So when somebody came and said, Hey, we want you to get a coach. They were basically saying, Hey, we want you to leave the firm. <laughs> um, and nobody right. wanted to hear that. Um, or in some rare instances, it was, Hey, um, you know, we think we might get sued if we don't put you through coaching. Um, and I say in some rare instances, because oddly enough, like we, we do most of our work in that space with like consulting firms. Most of our, the law firms that we work with don't actually have internal investigation procedures in place, which hmm. I just, the irony is, is yeah. too, too good. Um, <laughs> that's why I say very, very yeah. rare so for the most part, it was like, um, you know, something has gone very wrong or you're about to get fired. Um, and so I think that's kind of the problem is that we set this expectation that coaching was the Grim Reaper coming mm-hmm. to take you away. Um, and that is just so not the case. And I think that we're still fighting that to this day is that people really do feel as if it's punitive, they're in trouble, they've been called to the principal's office, when the reality is like, you know, anyone who's into sports can see this in this world very clearly. You could be a top performing athlete, you still have a coach. You have somebody to push you, to point things out, to see things from a different perspective, to help you expand your perception, going back to the perception conversation. So a coach is an exceptionally valuable tool, especially for leaders. And I think that we're fighting that sort of early introduction to coaching. And as per most things, we're five to 10 years behind the rest of the corporate world because, you know, I have friends who coach exclusively in corporate and you get the call to say like, you're getting a coach and people are like, I'm getting called up to the majors. Let's go. You know, like they're <laughs> yep, so yep. C-suite baby. Yeah. <laughs> like they it is such a sign that your organization is investing in you. Like mm-hmm. they're sticking with you if you've got a coach and we're still fighting the outplacement monster. Um, and I also think to, to be fair to my outplacement friends, like it's also kind of unfair to the outplacement industry, which mm-hmm. really is like an exceptionally wonderful bridge for most folks between their existing organization and wherever they're going to go in the future. It is a very valuable tool. If your firm gives you out the access to outplacement coaching, everyone should take advantage of that. And it doesn't mean that like you're horrible, you're bad at your job. It just means this is not the place for you and nobody should stay in an environment where it's not the place for them. So I think it also has done even outplacement work a bit of a disservice. 
Yeah. 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 And you see that, I mean, and, right. If, and if there is even some of that with people that are not you know, on the way out, even today, I mean, I'll see that where firms will have, um, programs, right? And it, it's programs that are not voluntary. You're not necessarily opting into, even if you're not like struggling with performance, in my case, you you just might not be interested in building a legal practice, right? Doing yeah. a bunch of business development, but then people are put into these programs, assigned a coach, you know, and that's a very difficult um, situation for the coach and, and the individual. So it's like this, you know, I think you're right, figuring out the right candidates, the right scenarios and situations and how to um how to you know find the right people for whom coaching is going to be really beneficial um is is still a bit of a struggle um but obviously it's it's better that it's being more oriented towards you know accelerating performance rather than just like fixing problems or covering your your butt because there's some issue that you need to deal with from a hr standpoint exactly yeah and i mean i guess if i'm um if i'm leading uh, myself a little bit towards the more positive side of things. Mm-hmm. That's that's what we're seeing, right? Is yep. that it is being used as a leadership tool. I mean, I think probably the biggest development since I started Fringe in 2017 is the number of internal law firm coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, those law firm coaches, uh, and I believe there might be an informal group that's actually tracking this right now, um, mm-hmm. but there's a good portion of them that are career development coaches, Mm-hmm. which usually is a, you know, just a nice way to say outplacement. Yeah. Uh, so very similar, but there uh-huh. are some firms that are really investing in their internal coaching benches. They're getting mm-hmm. um, not just coaches trained in coaching, but also their whole PD team, leadership mm-hmm. folks trained in coaching. It's an exceptionally valuable tool. Um, if I can shout out one um, in particular, I think, you know, Foley has done an amazing mm-hmm. job with this. So, um, Anjali Desai, uh, through like Jen Patton's leadership has just done an amazing job building out what is truly like a leadership executive coaching team. Um, and mm-hmm. they see, you know, the attorneys coming to them saying, mm-hmm. I really want to talk to a coach. I want to work on this skill. And to your earlier point around building culture, like those are the behaviors that really mm-hmm. build culture. So the more there are sort of trusted teams inside firms, the more we see that this is like a safe space and that people Mm -hmm. can see it as a development tool. Um, The other thing that we're sort of seeing more and more of is that it's showing up on the business side of things and it's showing up at the top levels of firm leadership. So people are calling us to say, hey, we have a class of new practice group leaders. We want to get them coaching because they're stepping into a whole new world. Mm -hmm. It's almost like starting a new job, even though you have not changed organizations. Um, So we're supporting people as they ascend through leadership. I think you said something earlier that reminded me of this. You know, it used to be, I felt like in most of my law firm experience, it was like you made partner and you were done learning and growing. Like, Mm -hmm. congratulations, you never have to learn again. (laughs) Um, Just a bit of a flawed perspective, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. So my, I mean, my mom used to always say, you're not done learning and making mistakes until you're six feet under. So mm-hmm. I hope to make a lot of mistakes and to be continuously learning for a long, long time. Um, and I hope my title doesn't interfere with that. So we're starting to see that more. And I mean, obviously having been business services inside law firms for 11 years before I started this company, I, it just warms my heart uh, so much to see us mm-hmm. investing 
in both the coaching and the training side for our business professional leaders. You know, the, the lawyers certainly do bring in most of the money, but if the business services folks walked at any point, all of them, yeah, firms would shut down. They would yeah. not know what to do. So um, it's great to see the investment in leadership development and in both of those spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we'll uh, talk a little bit more specifically about training now. Um, this is an area that, I mean, I don't know, there, there are, again, w- there's there's obviously problems that have been pervasive um, and and that probably many of them still remain, but there's, I think there's, there are some positive trends in the training area as well. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest challenges, and it, it still remains a challenge, I think it's just the, the way that many law firms um, approach training. It's oftentimes with a greater focus on, I think it's called like the, the locus of acquisition of knowledge, right? Where it's very much like knowledge sharing from trainer to trainees, um, but there's not a locus of application, like taking what they learn and applying that in the real world in the context of their practices. I mean, that's one of the things certainly that I think is, um, you know, will, will be a everlasting challenge, but um, what are what are some things that you're seeing in the training space that maybe are working or that, that firms are looking to do differently or doing differently? Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're exceptionally right on the application piece. You know, mm-hmm. training has always been the heart of our company. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's mostly because I sat in the room when I had hired a bunch of trainers when I was mm-hmm. inside firms and been like, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and, and application has always been the thing. Mm-hmm. So immediately when we started, it was like, how do we both create opportunities for application? But then, mm-hmm. I mean, not for nothing, training is marketing training is showmanship training is sales. Mm-hmm. So even as we're training, we're calling those out. Here's how you can apply this. Here's five things you can do after this program. Here's mm-hmm. how you can ch- do one thing differently next week. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that is a huge piece. I just wanted to like double down on that. Yeah. Things that are exciting right now in training is, and I hate to say this because I don't want to jinx it. We're very much like at the very beginning of seeing a push into a little bit more um, what we call periodized, but, you know, normal people would just call training series, Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. cohort training, uh, training that is not as Molly Peckman would say a random active training. Mm -hmm. Uh, We still do. And I know that my peers in the space also would echo this, like an obscene number of 90 minute workshops. Yep. Um, and my favorite is when you get the, the call from the very well-meaning person in PD at the firm who's been told they need to do all these things with no budget and no time. <laughs> um, we'd love for you to do a one hour training where you teach everyone how to give feedback, receive <laughs> feedback, um, yeah. manage people and delegate. And I say, <laughs> I would love to do that. Unfortunately, I left my magic wand uh, back home. So I cannot do that. Sorry. Uh, you know, it's, it's impossible. And and I think that that that's been the culture for a long time. Yeah. We're going to give you this tiny little window and we'd like you to solve all of our problems. And that I think is still pervasive, but we're starting to have like, let's do a leadership curriculum or let's actually think out a year in advance what are the skills that people need and how do we bring in both internal and external trainers to help support that so that it's cohesive? Are we building coaching circles, which, you know, I, 
to bridge the gap between these two. I'm always baffled um, by people's reactions to coaching circles when it they're sort of like, I'm not quite sure about that. Is I think, my God, like in a in a world where cost is always sort of at the front of the conversation, you can reduce what would be an individual coaching expense by usually more than 50% by putting mm -hmm. people into a cohort where they also get the benefit of learning from each other. Yeah. Um, so we're seeing the, the edges of that creeping in more series, um, more utilizing like flipped classrooms where they're, you're going to watch a video on your own time and then come in and we're all going to talk together more just like mm -hmm. straight up adult learning theory to mm -hmm. really help maximize that application that you're talking about. Um, and more of a request to get sort of down and dirty, which I really love. Um, we've recently even moved to a model where like when we're teaching you delegation, we're teaching you delegation and that's it mm -hmm. for 90 minutes, preferably more time, right? Like we're, we, we've just stopped trying to be the everything to everyone. Um, I, say this in a lot of settings, but it's like, you know, those restaurants in New York with the sign, they're like sushi subs, pizza. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody wants to eat there. Right. You shouldn't do that with your training either. When you're training on one skill, these skills are complicated and complex, mm -hmm. especially the stuff that we're talking about and that you're talking about with business development. Take the time to go deep into it. And we're mm -hmm. starting to see more and more requests for that. Yeah, no, agreed. I think that's that's true, and uh, you know, all that all that resonates in in my experience. Um, what about you know some of the other things that um, you know I'm I'm seeing working well is I guess call it socialization or collaboration. You alluded to this as well, but just you know how do you how do you create um, yeah small groups cohorts like you said uh, that are yeah both maybe doing some small group coaching, and then maybe collaboratively working on some projects, you know, collaborating on business development opportunities or um, working on delegating, um, you know, as, as a team, that kind of stuff. Are, are you, I find that to be more effective and, and create a more of a sense of internal accountability too. Um, yeah. Is that, is that something you're trying to build into more of your programs? So we've done it, we do it in a few discrete ways. Mm -hmm. uh, we definitely do it through team retreats that we do. Mm -hmm. And those are usually really, really great. And, and yeah. we'll sometimes even like map out some things for them to do three, six months after the team retreat. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, it's slightly different than just your traditional training where they're usually for an entire day mm -hmm. with one team, mm -hmm. small groups, 10 to 15 people. Um, the biggest obstacle I think that we face in the cohort training is, I mean, I feel like a broken record maybe in this conversation, but it's fear. People are mm -hmm. so scared to say something in front of their colleagues, to look stupid, to say the wrong thing, to get canceled. And so yeah. places where I find it's been really successful is in new associate cohorts, mm -hmm. uh, getting them in, working with them over a series of months as they're first getting together, because they are already so deeply bonded to each other mm -hmm. um, and they just don't have that fear yet. I, I, maybe they'll build into it. I hope they don't, but um, they just yeah. don't have as much fear or in groups that are exclusive to a particular seniority level. Mm -hmm. So um, we ran a number of allyship cohorts um, and those were really great when they were exclusive to the leadership level. We had one firm, I will say, and if you've got the culture for this, go for it. Um, that was able to do those cohorts with a mixed group of all the way from business services to senior partners. 
Um, that is a unique culture in our world, I will say, because there were free flowing conversations, lots of great insights. Like we know the benefits of doing this. I feel a lot of the times in our world, we spend so much time convincing firms of the benefits and instead of just being treated as expert um, and saying like, this is the best way to do it. And they're like, great, please come do it. It's like, there's a lot of fighting, a lot of tension against best practices, against adult learning theory, against cohort models, things like this, where it's like you and I see this all the time. This works exceptionally well. There's research that shows that people learn very well when you put them in this model, but we do a lot of, um, a lot of folding and a lot of catering to sort of the internal or initial reaction that leadership who knows nothing about adult learning theory has. Yeah. That's a spicy view. I don't know. No, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, all right. Well, Rachel, I, this has been great. We've covered a lot of ground. I know uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you go, uh, but I thought I, I would at least uh, offer the opportunity. Is there any any final thoughts? Like if, if if there's firms out there that are really thinking about you know these issues and really needing to make an investment, uh, to make a change, um, to to do things differently. Like I don't know what what maybe do you have any just just sort of broad thoughts on like what are what what should they be thinking about or are there certain levers they should be pulling in 2024 um, from an organizational standpoint? I mean, I think. 2024 is going to be an interesting year in a lot of ways. There are going to be some very real cultural challenges in firms as there will be some very real societal challenges, um, particularly in the anytime we have an election year, a federal election in mm. the U.S., it's, it's a tricky time. Yeah. Uh, I think my advice to law firm leaders, and this would be not just to those looking to make a change, is honestly, just don't be scared try to look at these as true opportunities and be willing to experiment. You know, there's a lot of fear. I mentioned that word earlier. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of scarcity mindset. And I think when it comes to people management, the best thing you can do is actually have sort of, I mean, this is going to be very woo woo, but an open heart and an open mind because people are all so different and they mostly just want to be seen and heard. And the more you can create opportunity for that in whatever mechanism works for your organization, the better off your culture will be. Yeah, well said. Okay, Rachel, before we go, where can people go to check out more about what you and Fringe are doing, uh, maybe connect with you online? Where would you point them? To the internet. Go to the internet. <laughs> we live there. Um, we are at fringepd.com. We're on LinkedIn. We try to answer our emails most of the time, <laughs> um, but LinkedIn is probably the best social media platform to find us on. And our website's just got tons and tons of information and free tools and, and lots of cool things to play with. So check us out there. All right, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.